Micah chapter 7, and we'll read the chapter and then we'll have our Bible study. Micah 7 verse 1 says, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat, or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among, among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks also the judge for a bride, and a great man speaks the desires of his soul. So they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor, and do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contentiously, daughter rises up against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against Him, until He pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light, and I will see His righteousness. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her. At that time she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. It will be a day for building your walls. On that day will your boundary be extended." It will be a day when they will come to you from Assyria in the cities of Egypt, from Egypt even to the Euphrates, from, even from sea to sea, mountain to mountain. And the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants on account of the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession, which dwells by itself in the woodland in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. Nation will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth, and their ear will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses. To the Lord our God they will come in dread, and they will be afraid before you. Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity, and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of His possession? He does not retain His anger forever, because He delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, especially as we just read, uh, Lord of Your your love and your kindness, Lord, a God, there is no God like you who pardons iniquity and sin. Lord, that you tread all of our sins under your feet and you cast them into the depths of the sea. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we thank you for uh, the mercy that has resulted in the full pardon of all of our sin and iniquity. Lord, all the guilt, uh, Lord, that was against us because of our many sins. Lord, the wrath, your indignation, the judgment, the condemnation, Lord, that was upon our head because of the way that we had transgressed Your law. And yet, Lord, we know that in 
Jesus Christ, all of these sins, <clears throat> Lord, all of our transgressions have been nailed to His cross. And Lord, they have been cast into the sea and You remember them no more. And You do not hold us, Lord, according to them anymore. And we thank You, Father, for forgiving us, Lord, for Your love and for Your mercy uh, to sinners who are so undeserving. And we pray that we would never grow weary of meditating and contemplating Lord, these great truths of Your mercy. So, Lord, teach us tonight as we open up Your Word. Lord, we pray that You would renew us. Lord, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, Lord, help us to shine as lights uh, in the midst of darkness. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, Micah chapter 7. So, this is a, a little bit of a longer chapter, so we'll hop right into it. But it ends on a very uh, encouraging note, a very encouraging note, a reminder of the forgiveness of God and who God is, right? Because this book has much of it been dedicated to the judgment that's coming because of the sins of the people. And certainly we know that the Bible does teach concerning the character of God that He will by no means clear the guilty. That those who refuse to believe in the gospel and refuse to repent of their sin, they will bear the wrath of God against them. However, not only is God a God who will by no means clear the guilty, he also is a God who pardons sin and iniquity. He is a just God, but He is also a merciful God. And to those who are humble, who are contrite, who repent of their sins, who trust in Christ, they find that God is very gracious, very merciful, and that He forgives all of our sins and all of our iniquities. And may we know God in this way. right? May we know the God of mercy, right? not merely the God of Justice. So let's turn then to chapter 7. We'll pick up in verse 1. He says, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape, gatherer, the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat, or a first ripe fig which I crave. Here, the prophet Micah is declaring a woe upon himself. He says, Woe is me, meaning that his state, his condition, is a very sad and miserable state. It is a declaration of some misery that has come upon him. Sometimes these declarations are because of a recognition of one's own sin, such as the case in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, where the prophet Isaiah says, Woe to me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. There, it's in recognition of his own sin and the misery that his sin has brought upon him as he sees it in contrast to the holiness of God that the prophet Isaiah announces this woe upon himself. At other times, this, the woe is a recognition of, some, uh, uh, of a discovery of some miserable state or something that is not favorable, something that is not good in terms of the circumstances, in terms of the surrounding. And this is what the prophet Micah is using it in, in relationship to. He's talking about the deplorable state of the people and the land, in that there is no righteous man to be found. And as a righteous man, being that he is a prophet of God, it is a very sad state when one finds himself alone, isolated, with very few people that he can um, have fellowship with, that he can talk with about the things of God. And this is why he says, woe is me, right? It is a sad and miserable condition to be a righteous man, to be zealous for the things of God, and yet to have no one who is like-minded, no one that I can have fellowship with, no one that I can talk to the things of God about. Would that not be a very sad condition to be in? To be there all alone, 
with no one to share your interest in the things of God, with no one to talk to about the things of God. He says that he is like a fruit picker that goes and gathers grapes, but there's no grapes to be had. He goes to gather the ripe fig, which he craves, but there are no figs to be gathered. He craves these things. He craves to be amongst the righteous, right? To be amongst the godly, but he looks and there's no one to be found. No one there in all of the land. And that's what he says in verse 2. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among them. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. The reason why he is in such a miserable state is because the godly person has perished from the land. There are no upright persons, he says, among them. And this is here in the land of Israel. In the land of Israel, certainly he's not going to find godly persons in Babylon or Egypt or Assyria, those places that are living in darkness. But you would expect here in the land of Israel, in the people that God has given his law to, that God has instituted his worship among them, that there might be some godly persons among them. And yet here, the state of the nation is so deplorable, it is in such ruin and misery, that it is as if there are no godly persons, that all of them have perished from the land, and that there is no upright person among them. Now, he means this in, uh, in, the, in the sense of an exaggeration. You know, he doesn't mean that there's not another single person who is a believer, right? This is similar to Elijah. In Elijah's day, when he uh, protests and says uh, that he is the only one left, right? They have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life, he says. And God's reply to him is that I've kept 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. However, that is a very small group in comparison to the rest of the nation. So that it was very rare indeed to come across someone who was godly, right? Who was righteous, who was pursuing the things of God. And when the righteous are surrounded with such ungodliness and immorality, it also has an adverse effect upon them. Because we know that bad company corrupts even the good morals of the righteous man. And so it brings the state into a very miserable situation. And this is the case in which Micah the prophet finds himself. There are few who listen, few who attend to the preaching, few who have been converted under his ministry, but the godly person has ceased from the land. In Psalm 12, Psalm 12 verse 1 Psalm 12, verse 1, this is a psalm of David, hundreds of years before Micah, and David uh, complains of the same thing. He says, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. In his own day, he says, the godly man ceases to be, that there are very few who are godly and who have an interest in the things of God. And in Mark chapter 10, and in Mark chapter 10, 12 to 14, Mark chapter 10, 
I think I wrote my uh, reference down wrong, but we'll read Mark 10, 13 and 14. It says, When they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Here, again, we must become like children to enter into the kingdom of God. And this is why it is so rare, so difficult to find the godly person, because there are very few who have humility, who are contrite in spirit, and who will enter in in this way. So here in Micah's case, there is a, uh, a real uh, a lack of interest in the things of God. And there are seasons in life, seasons and times, where there may be more interest, and then there are other seasons where there may be less interest. And this is the way it is in various lands and various locales. Right? There are times, even in our own country, where there was greater interest in the Bible, in the things of God, in religion, in church. And then we certainly live in a time when there is less interest in those things, and the churches are suffering, and there are very few people who are, have an interest in the things of God, right? so that it is all but dead in the land. Then he begins to describe in the second part of verse 2 what the people are like. Right? All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts for the other with a net. There is this universal sin and depravity. Right? So rare is the righteous man that it is as if they have completely vanished from the face of the earth. Right? All of them are doing these types of things. Right? Lying in wait for bloodshed, hunting each other with a net. The second greatest commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, and yet you see no humanity among the people. They are completely void of any type of natural affection, even for their own kinsmen. They are doing these types of deeds. And it is similar to uh, what it says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, that the hearts of men were wicked from their youth, right? That this is uh, the way it is amongst sinful man. And if God did not intervene, this would be true of the entire world. There would be no godly person at all if God did not intervene. And yet, even though it takes the miracle of God and it takes the work of God to bring this about, it still is a miserable situation to be in, right, when this is not the case. Verse 3, he says, Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks also the judge for a bribe, and a great man speaks the desires of his soul. Concerning evil, he says, both hands do it very well. They are very industrious, these people are, at doing evil, right, with both hands. They're not taking a hold of it with only one hand. Both hands they are using to grab evil, to seize it, and they are very uh, adept at doing evil and committing sins against God. And this is often the case. Even Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 16, verse 8, that the sons of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. That sinners and the sons of this age, unbelievers, they are very industrious in committing sin. Many times they're more industrious in committing their sins and in finding ways to do evil than the children of God are in doing righteousness and doing those things that are pleasing to the Lord to our own shame. So they are very skilled at evil. Here, the prince, the judge, the great man, right? These three 
are all in cahoots together to commit sin and evil. And whenever the principal men of the nation, whenever they are in league and they are themselves the chief proponents of sin and wickedness, it has a very ill effect upon the rest of the people. The prince, right, the ruler, the judge, the one who is to issue judgments, the great man, the noble man, the wealthy man, all of them are in league together. All of them are conspiring and in, in a way, to bring about sin and wickedness. There, he talks about them weaving it together, right? Working together to produce more and more sin against God. Verse 4, he says, The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. The best of them, he says, the most upright of them are like briars, and thorns. This is how wicked the land has become. That there's nothing good in them at all. Even the best of them, he says, are in this way. And then their watchmen. The day that they post their watchmen, these would be their prophets, their false prophets, who stand at their post and who tell them, it's going to be good for you. You're going to have peace. You're going to have safety. Right? God loves us. God is going to bless you. Nothing will happen to you. Nothing will befall you. This is what the, their prophets, their watchmen, this is what they will declare to them. However, on the very day that you post your watchmen and they're pronouncing to you God's blessing and God's favor upon you, then your punishment will come. God's punishment, God's judgment will come against them because of their sin. Then their confusion will occur. Their confusion, because their words are going to say one thing, but the reality is going to be completely different. So that there will be complete confusion and chaos amongst the people when the judgment of God comes upon them, when their possessions are taken away from them, when their children and their wives are taken off into slavery. And they trusted their watchmen. They trusted their false prophets. They rested securely and confidently that everything was going to be okay. Then they will be put into utter confusion because they did not listen to the true prophet of God. They didn't repent of their sin. Had they repented, perhaps the disaster, the disaster could have been averted. But they did not repent. Instead, they trusted in their watchmen, their false prophets. And then when the judgment of God comes, they will be put into utter confusion. Confusion, utter confusion and chaos. The prince, the judge, the great man, and the prophet, all of them alike, will be taken off. Verses 5 and 6. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For a son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are the men of his own household. Here he says, this is how treacherous the people are. Those that typically you would have confidence in, that you would trust because of mutual love, mutual affection. You typically think that your neighbor, your friend, that these people are not going to betray you, that they're going to be with you. They're going to be on your side because of the love that they have for you. But he says, this isn't the case. The people are so treacherous. There's no loyalty in them. There's only betrayal, only sin and wickedness, only lies and deceit, that even the neighbor, you can't trust him. Even your friend, you can have no confidence in him. Even the one who lies in your bosom, your wife, you have to guard your lips from her because she will betray 
you at this time. In Psalm 55, this is what the prophet there complains of as well, that the one who rose up against him was his friend. His friend betrayed him and rose up against him. And certainly we know that this was true of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even his, one of his own disciples betrayed him and turned against him. Psalm 55, 12, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling in their midst. So there it is not the enemy who is betraying him. It's his friend, his familiar friend, his companion. They used to have fellowship together, but now he has betrayed him in this way. And this is what the prophet Micah is predicting as well. When this judgment comes and when the Babylonians come upon them and are going from house to house, right? Going and interrogating them, threatening them with death. They're going to turn on each other. They're going to betray each other in order to save their own skin. This is the way that men will behave. Even those that you thought were your friend, you thought was a trusted neighbor, you thought was someone that you could confine in, even they will betray you in order to save their own skin. In order to save their own skin. So you have to guard your lips. This is also similar to what Samson discovered with Delilah. There she betrayed his confidence whenever he told her and she was prying him, trying to get information from him, pretending to love him, but used it in order to hurt him. Right? This is what happened there in that case. Then in verse 6, Son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises against mother. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Even the home, even the household, even the relationship between son and father, daughter and mother, even it is not free of betrayal and treachery. This is how uh, wicked the people have become. These bonds of closest relationships on earth, a son with his father, is there a relationship that can be any closer, that has more affection and love than a son should have toward his father? And yet here the son is rising against his father. A daughter should have great love for her mother, seeing that she gave her life, seeing that she raised her and has done so much for her. And yet now the daughter is rising up against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus tells his own disciples that this would happen to them. Matthew 10, 34 and 35. And this is the passage that he's quoting from uh, whenever he's referring to these events. Matthew 10, 34. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. So there, 
Jesus did not come to bring peace on the earth. Not exclusively peace. There will be peace, peace between God and man, and peace between believer and believer. And He does, in some regards, unite the hearts of the father to the children, to the sons, and the mothers to the daughters, when there is true faith there. And we must pray and desire and hope that that would be the case in our homes, that we would have Christian homes. But this isn't always the case. It's sometimes there is disunity. There is enmity between the members of the household because of faith in Christ. And now that can be true in regards of a wicked son against a righteous father or a wicked father against a righteous son. That's the context of Matthew 10, 34 and 35. It can also be true that when a land is given over to the judgment of God and to utter wickedness and treachery and chaos, that the wicked turn against the wicked, that they devour and bite one another in this way, right? So that a son is wicked and the father is wicked, and because they're equally wicked, they go against each other and do those kinds of things. This was the case with Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Who was the ones that murdered him? His own sons. His own sons rose up against him and murdered him. Not because he was a righteous man. He was a wicked man, but so were they, right? They were, and this is the way it is in many of these wicked kingdoms, right? Especially in the royal household that they all turn against each other and they love to uh, kill each other, poison each other, do all sorts of horrible things in that way. Verse 7, But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. Here, though this is the case in the land, it's a very deplorable situation. It's a very sad state. One that Micah says, woe is me because of the condition that I find myself in. However, even though things are so poor, even though it is a miserable condition that he finds himself, he is not going to resist the Lord. He is going to be patient. He is going to wait for the Lord to give to him his salvation. He will bear in this affliction. This is a trial for the prophet Micah and for the rest of the righteous in the land that they must endure, they must overcome. And here we see his steadfastness, his resolve that even though I find myself in this situation, I'm not going to forsake the Lord. I'm not going to go and join in with the ungodly, but instead... I will continue serving the Lord and I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I'm going to wait for the God of my salvation, for God to deliver me from this crooked, this crooked and this perverse generation. And in due time, God will do so. This is similar to what we've been studying in Hebrews chapter 6. We must, he said, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is an example. Micah is an example. Micah 7, 7. He is exercising faith and patience. I will wait. That is his patience. He believes that God will give to him an inheritance. He is waiting for that salvation. And while he waits, he continues to entrust himself to God. He has faith. He has patience. He knows that God will hear him and that ultimately in due time, according to God's own will, he will deliver him from every evil Thing. And this is the way that we must be as well. This is similar to what the prophet Habakkuk says. Habakkuk chapter 3, two books over. 
Habakkuk chapter 3, when God announced through him an equally miserable state of affairs, Habakkuk considers the judgment that is going to come upon the nation, the many trials and afflictions that he himself must endure because of this judgment. Because when God brings this judgment upon the nation, the righteous will suffer alongside the wicked. Right? Sometimes God spares the righteous from sufferings, such as when He brought His judgments upon Egypt. He brought them upon Egypt, but He preserved and spared the Israelites from facing the same judgments. He made a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. But there are other times when the righteous will suffer alongside the wicked, such as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taken into captivity just as the rest of the Israelites, though they were godly men. They were righteous men. They were faithful men, true believers, but they had to suffer. They were taken away from their homeland, away from their family, into a foreign land, and they were there in that way, and they had to entrust themselves to the Lord. This is what Habakkuk is referring to as well. Habakkuk 3.16, he says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait patiently for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet, and He makes me walk on high places. So there, even though the outward situation, in terms of his circumstances, is a very difficult situation, however, he's still not going to forsake the Lord. He's not going to renounce God and say, it is vain to serve the Lord. Because what is he looking for? He's not looking for an earthly city, an earthly kingdom. He's looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, just as Abraham was. They're looking for salvation, and he's going to wait for God to give that salvation. And that salvation, certainly it does have reference for this life, but ultimately it has reference for the life to come, for the eternal life. And that is what he is looking for. The same with Micah in Micah chapter 7, verse 7. Verse 8, he says, Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is the light for me. His enemies are rejoicing, going to rejoice over Him. Right? Where is your God? Right? You trust in Him. Will He deliver you? This is what they will say to Him, just as they did to the Lord Jesus Christ. But He says, don't rejoice over me. Yes, I may suffer momentarily. I may fall for a moment. But ultimately, I'm going to rise. There may be the darkness of suffering and affliction momentarily, but God is my light in the midst of all this, and ultimately, His light will shine on me. The favor of God, His countenance will be lifted up toward me, and I will dwell with Him forever and ever. And so, in the end, the righteous, they will triumph over their enemies. Though the righteous man falls seven times, what will he always do? He will rise up. He will always rise up. Though he be mistreated, though he have great afflictions, great sufferings, imprisonment, even being put to death, yet ultimately he will rise up because God is the one who sustains him. God upholds him and God will give to him his favor and his light 
will shine upon him. Verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. Here he says, I'm going to bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Even the righteous still have their sins. Even though Micah is a true man of God, he still has a flesh. And though he wants to do right, he finds that evil lies close at hand. He desires and he delights in the law of God in his inner being, but he finds another law at work in his member waging war against the law of his mind. That is the law of sin. So even though he's going to suffer, can he say, God, this isn't fair. God, this isn't right. This isn't just. I don't deserve this. No, because he still has his own sins. And all sin deserves to be punished, to, for there to be some indignation against it. Right? When he says the indignation of the Lord, he doesn't mean it in the sense of God's indignation against the ungodly or the unbeliever. Right. They have the wrath of God against them that will lead to their eternal condemnation. He, because he's a man of God, a man of faith, he has the favor and blessing of God. God is his father. However, as a father, whenever a son disobeys, the father still has a kind of indignation, a kind of anger or displeasure against the sin, and a father will punish his son accordingly. And this is what the prophet Micah knows, that whatever he experiences, whatever happens to him, he still has his sins, and it's still just and right for God as a father to give discipline to him according to God's own will, and God won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. God is a good, loving father, a wise father, who knows how to discipline his children according to their sins and according to the need for their own sanctification. And when God does that, we cannot complain and say, this isn't fair, this isn't right. Well, I'm a believer. I'm a child of God. You can't do this to me because we all have our own sins. Right? Anything we get above hell is the grace of God, the grace of God. So even if we have some miserable state, we cannot complain and say that this is unjust and unright. But rather, we need to be trained by it as the Lord desires, to be taught, to let it lead to our sanctification, to growth in godliness. And this is what he understands here, that God is going to discipline him, and whatever God de determines to do to him in terms of discipline is deserved, because he still has his sin, and so long as he has sin, he is in need of chastisement, in need of discipline in order to train him in the ways of righteousness. However, ultimately, God will plead his case, and God will give justice for him. God will bring his justice uh, to light in the life of the prophet Micah, and he will do it in all of his children. How his justice is satisfied in His own Son, Jesus Christ. He will bring me out to the light, and I will see His righteousness. Even though He has His sin, He knows that ultimately God will perfect Him, God will glorify Him. Otherwise, how will He see God's righteousness? It's impossible. God's righteousness will be seen in Him through this discipline, but ultimately, whenever He is perfected and glorified, when He sees Him face to face. Verse 10, then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her. At that time, she will be trampled down like mire in the street. When God brings this about, right, at the moment, 
the faithful man is suffering. He's going through this great affliction. It looks like, it appears, that God has rejected him, that God has forsaken him, that God is not hearing his prayers, that God does not have any concern for him. God has no love for him. And the enemies are taunting them, mocking them, ridiculing him. Where is your God? You trust in God? You pray to God? Then why hasn't God delivered you? Right? Why are you being afflicted in such ways? Well, ultimately, when God brings about this salvation and gives it and manifests it fully in the prophet Micah and in all of his children, then their enemies who taunted them and mocked them and ridiculed them for their faith, they're going to see this and shame will cover their face. Then they will know and they will have to confess that God does love us, that we are His children, that it is not vain to serve the Lord, that God did hear our prayers and ultimately God delivered us. Right? They don't have faith and patience. That's their problem. They want instantaneous deliverance. But we, through faith and patience, know that ultimately in due time, God will give deliverance to His people. And when this happens, the enemies will see it and they will be put to shame. The one who said, where is the Lord your God? Then he says, my eyes are going to look on her and she's going to be trampled down like mire in the street. There's going to be a great reversal. Right? The righteous will be delivered, they will be vindicated, and the wicked will be exposed, and then they will be punished. Right? They will suffer. In this present life, it is often the wicked who have comfort and pleasure. They have a life of ease. Right? This is the way that they live. And it is the righteous who are suffering, who are afflicted. But in the life to come, everything will be reversed. The righteous will be vindicated. They will have their comfort and good things in the life to come. And their enemies will be trampled down like mire in the street. Such was the case with the rich man and Lazarus. In this life, the rich man lived in comfort. He feasted sumptuously. He was dressed in fine clothes. He had all the pleasures of this life. And Lazarus had a miserable existence. But then in the life to come, Lazarus was being comforted in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man was in a place of torment. Everything was reversed, and it was manifested and revealed who had the favor of God. Because people assume that riches are the evidence of God's favor, and it's not necessarily the case. It does not mean you have it, and it doesn't mean that you don't have it. Right? right? It doesn't matter one way or the other. But ultimately, God will manifest who are His, who belong to Him, who are His children. Revelation chapter 11 Revelation 11, verse 11 to 13. Revelation 11, verse 11. It says, But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. In that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Here the two witnesses who were put to death, <coughs> martyred by the uh, wicked of the earth, the peoples of the earth, when God brings them back to life and calls them to heaven, who has to watch this? 
He says, their enemies watch them. The enemies that put them to death see God's vindication in them through their resurrection and their being called up, ascending into heaven, that they have to see those things. And this is a glory that God gives to His people, right? That they get to uh, be vindicated in such a way. Verse 11, he says, It will be a day for building your walls. On that day will your boundary be extended. It will be a day when they will come to you from Assyria in the cities of Egypt, from Egypt, even to the Euphrates, even from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. God in that day, though there will be a day of judgment, ultimately God will rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He will bring forth His people from captivity. They will come from Egypt. They will come from beyond the Euphrates, from mountain to mountain, from sea to sea. They're going to be scattered in this dispersion, but then God will gather them back and it will be a time in which they extend their boundaries and they build up their walls. Now, I take this to be both literal and figurative. This does happen literally with the Jews. They are dispersed in the Babylonian captivity into many various nations, and then God does bring them back, and they do reestablish their city, they rebuild the walls, and their nation is brought back in a sense. But ultimately, it has to refer to the true Jerusalem, right? The spiritual people of God who are comprised of men from every tribe and nation. From all over the world, God calls them from mountain to mountain to sea to sea, and the borders of that people are extended uh, to the very ends of the earth, those who are called by Christ to come into His kingdom. It says in 13, "...and the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants, on account of the fruit of their deeds." While God is building up His people, at the same time, His judgments will come upon the earth. The earth will be desolate because of their deeds. He will bring His judgment ultimately upon the world. Then verses 14 and 15. Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession, which dwells by itself in the woodland, in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and in Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came up out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. Here, shepherd your people with your scepter. A prayer to God that He would not utterly forsake His people, but that God would be their shepherd. God would be kind to them, that God would not scatter them and cast them off and no longer have His care and concern for His people, but rather that God would shepherd them with His scepter, that they would be the flock of His possession, that they would dwell in the woodland, in the fruitful field, in in feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days of old when God's kindness, when His favor was upon them, when He brought them in and gave them this good possession, this good land. But now because of their sins, they are being cast off. And yet here the prophet desires, he's praying that God would again gather His people, that He would again shepherd them, that He would not utterly forsake them, but that He would remember His covenant with them and that He would be faithful to them. And he draws back the remembrance of when they came up out of the land of Egypt. When God took the Israelites up out of the land of Egypt, it was in faithfulness to the covenant that He made with Abraham, that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that in their seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And here the prophet is recalling this 
great act of deliverance, which was the faithfulness of God in the covenant He made with Abraham to bless the nations of the world in His seed. And He is calling that into remembrance and asking God to again shepherd His people in this way, which the Lord we know does. He does this ultimately by sending the good shepherd who comes and gives his life for his sheep or for his people. And he is the one who cares for his flock, his flock. And his flock consists not only of believing Jews, but also of believing Gentiles, of you and me and all of those who call upon the name of the Lord. Psalm 95, Psalm 95 verse 7 Psalm 95 and verse 7. Actually, verse 6 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. Right, He is our God. We are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. And this is what the prophet knows. He is saying, shepherd your people again. Right, Care for them, build them up, protect them, feed them, nourish them, watch over them. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. Isaiah 40, verse 11 says, Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. So there, like a shepherd, he tends his flock. This is what Christ does. He gathers his people into his arms. He cares for them. He watches over them. He nurses them. He protects and provides everything that is necessary for their spiritual life and well-being. Verse 16. Nations will see and be ashamed of all of their might. They will put their hand on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses. To the Lord our God they will come in dread, and they will be afraid before you. When God restores the fortunes of His people, when God builds up His church, the nations are going to see... And they're going to be ashamed because they use their might. Though God used them uh, to do His will, as it was coming from them, they weren't intending it for good. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, whatever other nation God used, whenever they're coming to destroy the people, all they have on their mind is pillaging, raping, killing, uh, conquering, oppressing. This is what they have on their mind. They're using their might with an evil end. God, on the other hand, is using those nations for a good end, right? In order to accomplish His purposes. And He did use the Assyrians and the Babylonians as a rod to discipline His people, right? To punish them because of their sins. But then ultimately, God will restore His people. He will undo what the nations have done, how they use their might. And when they see that God is not against these people, but actually He is for them, and that everything that God is doing in the world is contingent upon the Christ coming through this nation, when they see this and they see that they were using their might to try to subvert the very will of God, 
to keep God from bringing His Christ into the world, then when they see this, they're going to put their hand on their mouth and they will be completely ashamed. Ashamed of all their sins and all the things that they have done. They will be like a serpent licking the dust of the ground. This is how miserable their state will be, like a miserable, filthy serpent, like a reptile on the earth, trembling out of their fortresses before God in dread and terror because they see that they have risen up in opposition against the Lord of hosts and against His Christ. And when they were doing this to His people, God was using them, but they were doing it with an evil intent, with an evil intent, and they will be ashamed of all that they have done. Then verses 18 to 20. Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possessions, of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our fathers from the days of old. Here, the book ends on a real positive note, a very encouraging note. And it's a reminder that our relationship with God is always on the basis of the free pardon of all of our sins and all of our iniquities. God cannot dwell with sinners, with the wicked. The, the wicked cannot be in His presence. It is our sins that make a separation between us and our God. And this issue of sin, this is the pivotal issue. This is the central issue that must be addressed that is creating this barrier and this separation between us and God so that we cannot be in fellowship with Him and God cannot be in fellowship with us. We cannot be His children. He cannot love us. We are His enemies. His anger and His wrath is against us. And all of it is because of sin. Doesn't the very beginning of the Bible teach this? Right? In Genesis chapter 3, what is it that brought the world into a state of misery, into a state of ruin, under a curse, and brought mankind into a state of sin and under the condemnation of death? It is our sin. The sin of Adam and then our own sins as well. So if God is going to restore this relationship with sinful man, then there must be the pardon of their sins and of all of their iniquities. And this is exactly what the Bible teaches us. This is what the gospel teaches us. How it is that a holy and righteous God can forgive us of all of our sins. How we as sinners can be reconciled to Him by not subverting His justice, but according to His justice, but also so that God can be merciful to sinners. And how is it that God does this? He is the one who initiates. Right? Who is a God, He says, like you, who pardons iniquity? What other God, what other false God of the nations, what other idol is like the Lord our God, who pardons our sins and our iniquities? The gods of the nations, the false gods, are petty, they are vindictive, they are wrathful, they get revenge on their enemies, right? They do all these kinds of things, but they don't pardon and forgive sinners. This is unique to the Lord our God, who pardons all of our iniquity. He passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of His possession. 
He passes over all of our sins. When he says passes over, he doesn't mean that he look, turns a blind eye to it or that he just sweeps it under the rug. Of course he doesn't do that. We know that when he passes over it, he's doing so in justice, in a just and according to his own righteousness. But he passes over it, meaning he's not treating us on the basis of our sin and of our iniquity. Otherwise, we would have his wrath, his disfavor, his displeasure would be upon us. But he passes over those things and he treats us favorably. Also notice he doesn't do it for all men. Who does he do it for? The remnant of his possession. His remnant, which are his people. Those, according to Romans chapter 11, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. They are those who are the true believers. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. God is not angry with us forever. Even with the believer who has a sin that he commits, and it does bring God's displeasure because of that sin, it does grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but does God remain angry forever? No. He forgives us. He forgives us because He delights in unchanging love. God delights in unchanging love. This is a part of His nature. His very character is summed up in these words. A delight, a, a, a cherishing of mercy, of unchanging love toward His people. Which, if God delights in unchanging love, then shouldn't we also delight in unchanging love, in being merciful to one another? Because just as we sin against God, and God does not hold our sins against Him, we're going to sin against each other. And we shouldn't hold each other's sins against one another as well. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. God cast our sins into the depths of the sea so that they are never found they are never seen again. Not that God, in His omniscience, does not know about our sins. He means it in the sense of His vindictive justice. They will never be brought up before the bar of God's justice to condemn us, because these things have been cast into the sea, into the depths of the sea, and they are hidden in Christ, and now they are not charged against us anymore. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He forgives us of all of our sins and of all of our iniquities. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Ultimately, God will give His truth to Jacob, His unchanging love to Abraham. To Abraham and all of his spiritual descendants, they will have the unchanging love of God. And how does all of this come about? Who is the source of all of this favor and kindness and mercy and grace? All from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because of His death and His resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. This is the means by which the fount of God's mercy is opened up to us. And then we uh, partake of that through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. By faith in Him. And this is what God swore to the forefathers from the days of old. Referring back to Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, and then all the promises to Isaac and Jacob that were reaffirmed throughout the book of Genesis. This is the promise that God swore to the forefathers in days of old. It, is, it had to deal with the forgiveness of sins. Not merely physical offspring. Not merely a physical land. Yes, those things were necessary 
but ultimately it was for the forgiveness of sins to bring the Christ into the world so that we might have salvation in His death and in His resurrection. And this is how Zechariah interprets these things in Luke chapter 1. He refers to these same things, the swearing of God to the forefathers of old. Luke chapter 1, verse 67 says, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David His servant. As He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His way, to give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sin in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. That's the same as Micah chapter 7, 18 to 20. This is what Zacharias is realizing, the birth of John as the forerunner to the Christ. This is how God is going to accomplish this and how it is that God will be a God who pardons iniquities, who treads all of our sins under His feet, who casts them into the depths of the sea, who delights in unchanging love, this is the means by which God is able to do so towards sinners. It is only through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is the promise that He gave to the fathers of old. And this is the promise that He has fulfilled in Christ and the promise that we have become partakers of through faith in Him. So that the promise to Abraham is for all of his descendants, right? That God would bless the nations through Him. So, Micah is speaking of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, mercy, all of those things. 